So many of you probably know the story of the life of the Buddha, how he was born into a very wealthy family, perhaps even born as a prince and lived a life of great luxury where he had all of the uh, hedonistic experiences of, that were available at the time, the best clothes and perfume and food and supposedly a whole harem of women to, to satisfy his every need. So he really knew that lifestyle of indulgence and luxury. But at some point he realized that that wasn't satisfying that the challenges of life were so great that no pleasure of that kind could uh, address that, address the difficulties of old age, sickness, and death. So he left that life and set out to wander and to practice with the greatest teachers of his day, which at that time were teaching um, mainly samadhi, deep states of concentration. And it's, it's said that he was such an excellent practitioner and student that he quickly mastered what they taught and both of these teachers then said, well, come teach with me um, and be my equal. And he said again, no, because he saw those states as pleasant as they were, were just conditioned and that sooner or later they, they ended, one had to come out of them and that they weren't the answer. So then he took up years, it said, of severe ascetic practices with the understanding or the idea that if you modify the body enough, some essential uh, aspect, the Atman, could almost be called the soul, would be released and go and join the gods in heaven. And so he practiced in that way intensively for years um, and has great descriptions of how hard he practiced and how little he ate. And he says that at one point, um, if he touched his belly button, he could feel his spine and his hair was just coming out in clumps and his eyes were sunken in his head. And uh, you can actually go to the place where he is said to have practiced. It's a cave called the Pragbodhi Cave. It's a few miles out outside Bodhgaya. And in that cave is a statue of what's called the emaciated Buddha, gaunt and hollow, just like a ribs all standing out and really get a sense of the, the power of the practice that he had done. But again, he realized that that wasn't it. He had done everything that was possible to do and still hadn't realized the enlightenment that he thought would be possible, could be possible for him. So it said that he took some food, some sustenance. He ran in, he left that cave and started walking towards what has become Bodhgaya, met a young woman, Sujata, who offered him some milk rice. And now there's a beautiful uh, stupa commemorating her. Sujata's village is very famous now. Um, took some sustenance and gained strength and realized that he needed strength. He needed to take care of his body if he was going to achieve his goal, his aim of awakening. So um, took some food, walked on to Bodhgaya, sat down under the Bodhi tree where he made this gesture that so many of the Buddha Rupas um, have, the touching the earth gesture. I will not leave this spot until I uh, achieve my aim, quest, goal of awakening. And so there's a whole story one could tell about what he experienced that night and his, uh, his awakening was deep and powerful and he finally realized the truth for himself 
and soar, as he said. There's many great lines, you know, oh, house builder, you know, you won't build this house anymore, the house of ego, just seen through the whole display. And so he sat contemplating the enormity of what he had opened to, the depth and profundity, and recognized that um, very few people would understand. So he thought about teaching and thought that, no, this is too difficult, it's too challenging to people's concepts of how things are, and if I tried to teach, that would just be wearying and troublesome for me. So he just said, no, I'm just going to stay here enjoying, as I said, the bliss of deliverance. Well, luckily for us, the Brahma Sahampati, who was one of the, in the, day, in the realm of the Brahmas, heard the Buddha make this decision, knew he was making this decision, said, oh, no, 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 this can't happen, and came down and um, spoke to the Buddha and said, dear Lord, you know, what you have learned is going to be of so much value for the whole world, the whole universe, and there are people, there are some with but little dust in their eyes. They will understand you. You can find them. And so, again, luckily for us, the Buddha listened to the Brahma Sahampati, or one might say, to his own inner wisdom and compassion, and decided that he would teach. So he thought, who should I first speak to? And the first people that came to his mind were his two teachers of concentration practices. But it said that he looked with his omniscient eye, with his full awakening came all of these powers, and he saw that they'd recently passed away, not, not available anymore. So he then thought of the five ascetics. These were um, five men that he had done these really um, vigorous practices of asceticism with, and he thought that they were perhaps open to hearing these teachings. So he set off to walk to where they were, which is in Saranath, it's, uh, just outside Varanasi. Quite a long walk, took him a long time to get there, but he set off with this intention of going to Sarnath. And it said that on the way he met another wanderer, this wanderer Upaka. And, you know, I think I mentioned I was on pilgrimage in India and, and sort of done some reading about that time and, and getting a sense of what it was like. And it was a time rich with spiritual seekers. It was you know, quite common for people to leave, mainly men, leave their homes and, and go on this spiritual search. So he was a fellow wanderer. And when Upa, it said that when Upaka saw the Buddha coming, he was just immediately taken by his countenance, by his, his manner and demeanor, and said, what are you? You know, what's happened to you? What's gone on? You know, you, you're radiant, you're glowing. And it said, this is a short excerpt of what the Buddha said, I am an all-transcender, an all-knower. I have no teacher in all the world. I alone am fully enlightened. He went on a little bit about this. Notice he didn't say, well, I'm just a bunch of aggregates walking along here. He actually said, this is my experience. He, he had some sense of the uniqueness of what had happened to him, how precious it was, and that it was a gift to the world that he had had this experience. So he didn't deny it and just say, oh, you know, you know, just me, a bunch of aggregates, form feeling. He said, I am enlightened. But fellow Upaka didn't seem quite so convinced. And it said that he kind of looked him up and down. You know, Buddha made this big pronouncement about his awakening and said something like, well, good for you, friend, and sort of shaking his head, walked off on another path. So 
it must have taken the Buddha back a little. You know, here you are, you've had this amazing experience, and the first person that you get to talk about it, and they kind of shake their head and say, you know, thanks but no thanks kind of thing. So as he continued walking, I'm sure he contemplated, how can I talk about what I experienced? How can I convey to other people what has made this huge difference in my understanding? When he finally arrived in Saranath, the deer park just outside um, Varanasi, he found this five ascetics and they saw him coming. And again, they said, oh, there's Gotama. That's his family name. He's fallen off the path, kind of gone off the wagon. You know, he's taken food. Look at him. He's fat. He's uh, taken up a life of luxury. Let's not speak to him. And, you know, they're kind of, it's like, you know, high school. They all went, I'm going to talk to you. But the closer he got, um, again, they were just taken by his radiance, by his, his presence. And they couldn't help themselves. They prepared a seat and basically said, what's happened to you? And so the Buddha, in reply, gave the teaching that's now so famous, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, um, his first discourse there in Saranath, the setting into motion the wheel of the Dhamma. So it's really from this place and this time that all of his Dhamma teachings began to unfold. And for the next 45 years, he basically expanded on what he uh, explained and taught to these five ascetics, which is the necessity or the value of what he called the middle way. And that's the middle way between indulgence and luxury, which he had known so well as a, as a prince, and asceticism, which he said doesn't, just leads to more suffering, is not the way. So to find always the middle way, the sense of balance, and that the path or the way to the end of suffering that he had found was the Four Noble Truths. That's what I want to talk about tonight. This uh, essential core teaching that really changed the world. We wouldn't be here today without this teaching. And if you remember an earlier talk I gave on mindfulness, saying that I thought that mindfulness was really the radical and unique teaching of the Buddha that I think will have an enormous impact in the world. This teaching on the Four Noble Truths was also radical. Again, at the time, Brahmanical kind of religion, um, some understanding of karma, a lot of thinking, fatalistic thinking that, you know, it was a very caste-ridden society. One had one's place, and there was no way to change that. We were at the mercy of the gods, so people would be beseeching the gods for blessings and to take away their sorrows or give them what they wanted. And the Buddha just said, no. It doesn't work like that. Your happiness and your suffering is in your own hands. This was radical to say in this, in this very structured society, hierarchical society, where there was a real sense of, of fatalism and, and um, not being able to change things, to actually, that it was actually possible for each and every person to know and find freedom within themselves. I mean, I can't imagine how that must have seemed to hear that for the first time. And what he was pointing to was one of the many 
paradoxes in his teachings, that to actually know the end of suffering, we have to turn towards suffering and know suffering to find the end of suffering, that we let go to find happiness, that we give up to know abundance. These challenging practices and teachings that seem to pull the rug out from under our habitual way of thinking, this turning towards suffering to find happiness. I mean, if you think of what you're doing here, if you tried to explain it to someone who didn't have any idea what, what you were going to do, so I'm going to go to this kind of rustic place in the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts for six weeks or three months. I'm going to live in a little room that's about 10 by 12 with a foam mattress and a metal frame and, you know, maybe a few shelves. I'm going to eat three simple meals a day. I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to write. I'm not going to play music or listen to music or look at the internet or text or, or go out for entertainment. I'm not going to do any of those things. And I'm doing that to find happiness. Wouldn't most people's be, response be, you're crazy, you know? That's not, doesn't sound like happiness to me to, you know, withdraw in that way from life. You know, their idea, the idea that we keep getting from society is happiness is out there somewhere. And you just haven't run hard enough to find it. You know, if you did things a little more in the right way, you'd be happy. You know, I think, remember James said in his talk the other night um, that we, we are bombarded by these messages. And he said 3,000 messages a day, you know, advertising stuff, trying to catch us the hooks. Later on, he said, you know, I got that figure quite a few years ago. It's probably t 10 times that now, and it probably is. You know, once you factor the Internet in, and I'm sure you're aware, even though you're not looking right now, of what the Internet is like, and you open a page, and now they have all these little ads that jiggle at you, you know, and there's someone sort of waving, and like the eye is drawn to it. And the, you know, that's, I don't know who's clicking on these ads. Someone must be, but you know, the woman or the man, she's usually a woman. And they've kind of got these drawn in wrinkles, which like, haggard, haggard. And then the next frame, oh, happy, you know, Botox or whatever it is, you know, click, the wrinkle cure or whatever. And they're changing, you know, the morphing. So the eye is drawn. You think, oh, that's happiness. If I didn't have any wrinkles, I'd be happy. You know, we hear this message again and again. And yet the Buddha said something radical, profoundly different, that we don't, happiness isn't found by chasing it, but by actually stopping, sitting still and looking within. One of the things you have hopefully uh, renounced for this time are watching videos on the internet. But if you're out there in the world, you can't avoid them. So I saw this one just yesterday, someone had posted, it's this guy, who's taken to going around London with a megaphone and basically being the voice of Big Brother. And he starts off by saying, you know, things like, everything you, believe, you read in the mainstream media is true. Consume, 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 that's the answer. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're unhappy, go shopping. And, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't stop, uh, buy things you don't need. That's the way to get the economy going. Um, if, you, if, you, if you meet any Buddhists, don't believe them. They'll tell you to meditate. Meditation is a, is a, is a waste of valuable shopping time. You know, don't believe them. <laughs> don't question anything. You know, thinking is, is painful and difficult. Don't do it. Just 
go shopping. And he's going around, and the, and the police are coming up. Well, actually, it's not the police. That's what's interesting. It's these security people who are dressed exactly like policemen, in, and they can do that in England. And he'll kind of make fun, you know, why are you dressed like a policeman? And they'll say, you know, stop it, stop it. You can't speak like that. He said, what, I can't speak through a megaphone? No, you can't. Why not? You know, I'm just speaking. I can, you know, nothing against speaking, no law against speaking. And they'll say, you don't have a permission to be here. And he'll say, I'm just in public space. And he'll point to you and you, do you have permission to be here? Do you have permission? You know, just making fun of this, um, especially, you know, all of the security there is around and the order that's, you know, we're trying to be, uh, they're trying to control us in this way and just saying out loud what we all think. And it's, it's kind of both hilarious and really sad because this is the message that people are hearing. You know, if you're unhappy, go shopping. You haven't bought enough yet, or the right stuff, or enough stuff. This is what we hear. This teaching on the Four Noble Truths is going in the radically opposite direction. What the Buddha does with this teaching is to clarify what the real problem is and provide a real solution. And as Ajahn Sumedho says, if we lost all of the other teachings, you know, the 26 volumes of the Buddha's teachings and everything that's been written since, um, if we still had the Four Noble Truths, that would be enough because these, this teaching has everything in it. It's got the problem, the cause, and the end to suffering. So the first Noble Truth is just very simply, there is suffering that suffering is a truth or a fact of existence. Notice it doesn't say, as you can often hear misquoted, life is suffering or even everything is suffering. You can hear people say that that's the first noble truth. It's not that. It just says there is suffering. There is this noble truth of suffering. And the Pali word that's being translated here is dukkha. And this word doesn't have a good English translation because its meaning ranges from the greatest pain and sorrow and loss to the most subtle uh, discomfort, dis-ease that we can experience, that whole range. And you can hear it translated with words like stress or anguish or inconstancy or unsatisfactoriness or unreliability or imperfection. So it's this whole range. And we know it. We know suffering, don't we? I mean, just for us here, you know, in a life, every life, so many experiences of suffering, of loss, of grief. A really close friend had a terrible bike accident. You know, strong and healthy, going on a long bike ride, just hit something, really suffering with physical and, and, and possibly brain injuries. It's like one moment to the next, a life changed and all the ripple of that, of the lives around him. Someone we know, knew and loved for years, an older woman, a Dharma practitioner for many, many years, just died. You know, and it was a peaceful death, but still that loss of separation. And I was actually really happy. Guy actually quoted her in a Dharma talk last week. She didn't give the name, but these words of wisdom from this dear friend of ours. And just to know a few days later she passed on, but somehow... You heard her wisdom, you know, so she's not, it's not an ending, but just a, a shifting. All of us have 
either ourselves or friends with challenging illnesses or diseases. This is not something we don't know. It's so apparent. Yesterday I woke up with a stiff neck, you know. That's also suffering. It's in some ways so minor, yet it's suffering. And here on retreat, we don't leave it at the door. I'm sure you know. Suffering of the body and the aches and pains or the illnesses or discomforts, the, the, the weaknesses of the body, the mental and emotional challenges, our memories, the judging that we do of ourselves and others, the loneliness that we can feel here. This is suffering. But the question, well, one of the questions is, why is it noble? Why is it the noble truth of suffering? What's noble about suffering? Suffering sucks, you know? Who wants suffering? It's noble if it turns us to practice. If it leads us to practice and we find a path, then it becomes noble when suffering is really understood as not something to resist or reject, but actually a doorway that we can open to find freedom. And it's a really important shift that happens when we go from hearing or even knowing the Four Noble Truths as a list, as something the Buddha said 2,500 years ago that's been written down or passed on or whatever, to see them as practice, as practices, This is significant. Each of the truths has three aspects to it that revolve around a central practice that the Buddha asks us to take up if we really want to know and understand his teaching and find freedom. So with the first noble truth, first aspect is there is suffering. This is the truth. The practice is suffering should be understood. The third aspect is always, and this is kind of a reflection of the Buddha in the sutta, suffering has been understood. Again, it's this gesture of expression of his, his opening, his awakening. And they're all important. Each of these three facets of the truth are important. As we reflect on the truth of suffering, we see it in its both universal and personal nature. This is the nature of experience. Sooner or later, in one form or another, now or in the future, there'll be suffering. And of course, all the suffering that's gone on in the past. So there's this inevitability to suffering. We will not escape it, no matter how blessed our lives are. And so we come to understand that it's not wrong, that we're not a victim of some random mistake, but actually this is the nature of things. And so the next aspect or facet is that suffering should be understood. And that is really the practice that we do here, to inquire into, get curious about the very nature and experience of suffering itself. So we don't turn away from it or deny it or diminish it. Even, you know, a stiff neck or a little bit of being disgruntled. This is suffering, to inquire into it and to see its nature, to uh, investigate its cause and its functioning, its beginning and ending. So we explore it. And then the third facet, suffering has been understood. This is the Buddha's powerful expression of his awakening in all of these truths. I have known, 
I do know suffering. I'm not resisting suffering. I understand suffering. And it's a bit like his earlier expression, you know, I am awakened. It can seem kind of prideful in a way, but to actually say, I know this, I, I have opened to this truth and I know it, is a powerful expression of our own intention and aspiration to awaken. It's not a misguided uh, expression of pride, but rather a clarity of knowing that's important for us to trust and open to. So we explore this whole range of dukkha, of suffering. I joked the other day about, you know, dukkha, dukkha, and more dukkha, it can seem like at times. And I hope, you know, emphasize that we also need to open to the beautiful states, the joy and gratitude and love, of course. But will it really willing to know dukkha, to know suffering? The Buddha talked about three kinds of suffering, three kinds of dukkha. The first one is just the ordinary suffering that I've, I've been talking about mainly. It's called dukkha dukkha, you know, the dukkha of dukkha. It's just suffering. And then the, the dukkha that's produced by change, viparinama dukkha, and the more subtle dukkha of conditioned states, sankhara dukkha. So it's a little bit about each three. This dukkha dukkha is, is what we commonly talk about, what we easily recognize. The Buddha's description of it is, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, distress and despair are dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. Getting what you don't want is dukkha. Being separated from what or who you love is dukkha. Sound familiar? Getting what you don't want, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, being separated from what you love. This is dukkha. So we recognize very easily this kind of suffering. But the Buddha went on to explore or teach about more subtle experiences of dukkha that we don't often easily want to recognize. The next viparinama dukkha is the dukkha that's brought about by the very fact that things change. You know, that however happy or blissful your meditation is, however delightful lunch was, it will end. The beginning of something delightful has within it its end. And if we open to that, we see the suffering because most of the time we've been holding on and the ending is painful. So on retreat like this, we really get to explore that aspect of suffering and how we create it for ourselves through our grasping, trying to hold on to what is inevitably changing. The next kind of dukkha, sankara dukkha, is more subtle again. You know, we can kind of get, oh, things change, and when they, when they leave us, if they're happy, you know, if they're good experiences, we suffer. And actually, if they're difficult experiences and they change, we're happy. But that happiness is also going to change. But sankara dukkha goes to a, a different level. It's not just seeing the endings of things. It's really stepping back and saying the very nature of things is unstable. The very nature of everything is inherently unreliable, 
constantly changing, conditioned, made up of things coming together, and anything that's constructed will come apart, even as it's still seemingly together. We can know this and feel this very subtle level of suffering. Sometimes it's not so subtle. Remember being um, in some teachings with the Dalai Lama, you know, and sometimes, you know, he's just wonderful to be with, but they can drone on and on a bit about stuff that, you know, it's like, I don't know what he's talking about here, or it's just from a text. But there was this moment in these teachings, you could just feel the whole, you know, the thousands of people become riveted. And he said, you know, we all hear this teaching about impermanence. We go, yes, right, I know, beginnings and endings, the sunrise, the sunset. Yes, I know. And he said, no, that's not it. He said, our idea is things begin and they persist for a while and then they end. And that's impermanence. And he just said, no. He said, things don't persist at all. It's a constant flux. If we see clearly, we see it's all in motion. There is no stability. There is no you know, ground we can say, oh, this I can trust. This is reliable. If we're seeing in this way, this is Sankara Dukkha, to really see that, that it's all in motion. And you know, at times this can be overwhelming to see in this way, to not feel that sense of reliability. The Buddha said, it disintegrates and therefore it is called the world. It disintegrates and therefore it is called the world. Now what disintegrates? The eye disintegrates, the ear disintegrates, the nose, the tongue, the body, consciousness and their corresponding sense data. It disintegrates, therefore it is called the world. This is why he's radical, because, I mean, our thing is, it's solid, therefore we call it the world. He says it disintegrates, therefore we call it the world. What would it be like? You know, we can feel that, you know, even as I read that's like, no, you know, we want the world to be reliable. But this was what he saw, this radical, ephemeral nature, conditioned nature of everything. This is... Sankara dukkha. But in this teaching on dukkha, it's not that, you know, we're in this state of constantly holding on, that everything's unreliable, that it's all trembling and and subject to change. It doesn't mean that Life is full of gloom and doom, and we should be pessimistic because it's all going anyway. That's nihilism. The Buddha really counseled against that. We can have a life full of blessings with love and relationships and, and satisfying work and still find that it doesn't quite do it. You ever been in that place where everything kind of seems like it's basically okay? And some inner knowing says, not quite it, not quite enough. And then we think there's something, something wrong with us, that you know, we haven't figured it out or gotten the right job or the right partner or the right wardrobe. If we just you know, manipulated experience a little, we'd get it together. But as practitioners, we see that it's deeper than this, that it's not about, you know, as they say, moving around the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know? It's changing. We need to come into alignment 
with this. As the Buddha said, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of which keeps you bound. What is that one thing? The truth of suffering. So it's a a doorway. It's not, you know, we don't land in suffering and that's what it's all about. But we really see it as an opening to deeper and deeper wisdom. Most of us try actively not to see it. You know, think of all the strategies that you have to avoid suffering, mental or physical. You know, certainly out in the world, you know, through the media or keeping busy or distractions, um, people resort to intoxicants or drugs, whether they're prescribed or self-medicated, basically as an avoidance of this truth of suffering. All of our defense mechanisms all of our strategies of denial and, you know, keeping moving, to try not to feel this, acknowledge this deep truth. The blaming, you know, oh, it's their fault I feel this way. It's my parents. Or, you know, if they didn't, it got me into a better school or if I'd had different friends or, you know, been better at math, I could have, you know, done something with my life. All of these ideas we have to kind of try to understand what's going on. The Buddha says, unless we really come to some deep understanding of this truth. I I was told that, uh, you know, we use this word understand, and in this context, it means to stand under, like standing under a waterfall. That we just stand, it's really that attitude of surrender or acceptance to the way things are, then we can come to know suffering. Because unless we do, if we stay in the resistance and the denial and the busyness and the escape, we're always going to be at the mercy of this truth of suffering. There's no strategy that can persist long enough to allow us to avoid it. And so, as I said, each of the truths has a practice. This truth of dukkha is to be understood. The line just came through. I hesitate almost to use it. It's like retreats are a dukkha factory. You know, you get to see the dukkha because there isn't the distraction. There isn't, you know, there's no... Let's get in the car and go for a drive or, you know, go and see a movie. It's like, I, you know, often on retreats, it's like, please, a movie. Can I watch someone else's mind for a while and not my mind? But here you are in, you know, the movie of your mind. We get to see it on all of these levels, the really, you know, anguish, the pain and the suffering, to just the little least bit of irritation. As the mindfulness grows, we see this nature of having a mind and a body. And we see it on a very personal level and at times open to the impersonal nature of suffering. Of course, the suffering of the world. Immense, immense. But I think I said in another talk, because it's so important, that the Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. We're not suffering just to suffer. We're suffering to understand suffering. So we know suffering and find that doorway to freedom through turning to suffering, getting curious about it, 
What is the nature of suffering? What's the nature in the mind, in the body? What causes me to suffer? You know, how do I create and perpetuate my own suffering? So we look at this question. Well, the Buddha's answer to this question was the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is desire, the Pali word tanha. I've been told that a literal translation of that is thirst, but not just thirst, because thirst is you know, kind of neutral. It's unquenchable thirst. It's a thirst that cannot be satisfied. That's where we get into trouble, because we think that if we just get the right sip, the right colored beverage with the right you know, additives in it, you, know, you can go into Whole Foods now and there's you know, rapture and peace and calm, and you, know, you just buy it by the bottle, energy and, and happiness and bliss. Oh, okay, I'll take a bottle of that. Again, if it was that simple, we wouldn't all be here. And so the image is thirst. Again, back to India. For those of you that know the country, it's a very hot country at times. You know, commonly in the north especially, temperatures in the hundreds during the hot season. And the Buddha would have known this, so his imagery is about craving as being a fire and thirst the problem the experience, all of these imageries around, imagery around heat and fire as suffering, and that coolness is what's a balm, is what's soothing. And again, he, the Buddha used these common metaphors that people were familiar with to describe the experience so they could understand it and offer this uh, release, this opening. Um, gosh. I see it's ten past, but I'm still on suffering. Can keep moving? Uh, and so he often spoke about the the body, the senses being on fire. There's that famous fire servant sermon, and it was actually given to a group of fire worshippers. And he said, "You know what's on fire? It's not just you know the fire and worshiping the fire." He said, "The eye is on fire. The ear is on fire." The, tongue is on fire. Fire with what? Fire with the flames of greed, aversion, and delusion. And he spoke to them this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and it said that a thousand of these people became fully awakened. May it be so tonight? I'm not holding my breath. But, you know, we can see this, the fire of, of desire, of passion, of wanting, of aversion, and feel how it burns, how, how much suffering there is in that. And he spoke about the three kinds of desire, the the simple kind of desire for sensual pleasures, a good taste or sound or touch. But more interesting, he talked about bhavatanha, desire for becoming. And it's on the kind of gross or obvious level of me, I, me, and mine. But all of the identities that we take up, you know, as good or bad, a mother or a father or a son or a daughter or a lover or a partner or enemy, you know, all of the identities, this is a form of craving. And then vipawatanha, not wanting to be, uh, non-becoming, a wishing away. You know, and again, the obvious not just wanting to be here, but all of the ways we push away or deny experience, not liking my anger 
or my nose or my my memories, whatever it is. This is vibhava tanha. And it's interesting to look on these more subtle levels because desire is beguiling. You know, we want pleasant things. We don't want unpleasant things. So it masquerades as this this thing that we want. Sharon Salzberg tells this story about being in a bazaar in Asia somewhere and, you know, they're selling everything that, you know, you could, all of these different things and someone yelling behind her, come here, come here, I have what you want. And wouldn't you, you know, if someone said that to you, I have what you, wouldn't you go? It's like, what do I want? You have it? You don't even know when you want it. This is the beguiling nature of desire, and it's just endless. The practice with the second noble truth is to see the desire as separate from the object that desires are endless because what is unquenched is the force of desire itself. There's a temporary cessational quenching. We get the object of our desire. It's like, ah, now I'm happy. Oh, that's old. Now, you know, the next thing, because the desire is still there. The desire is around looking for the next thing that we want. And when we talk in this realm, it's not that, especially as lay people, that we can't enjoy things in life. It really is about this obsession or attachment, this I must have, I can't be happy unless I have or or get X, Y, or Z. This is what we need to look at. So the practice with the second noble truth is that the cause of suffering Tanha, this unquenchable thirst, is to be abandoned, is to be let go. And in this abandoning, it's not out of aversion. It's not, you know, bad, wrong, you shouldn't, you shouldn't want that or, or have this experience or this possession. But to really see that when we relate unwisely to things and, ex- and experiences, we cause our own suffering through the limitation, through the um, uh, conditionality we put on these experiences. To see that there's no, it's not the objects that are the problem. It is this force of unquenchable desire. That's what we need to turn and see. That's what we need to recognize. And the Buddha's solution is, you know, I use this image of the spotlight, take out the bulb. You know, but but perhaps we can just be environmentally friendly and first put in a fluorescent bulb, you know, lower wattage, you know, still lights up a little bit, not quite so intense. We put in gradually lower wattage into that bulb and we see it's actually not reducing our sense of well-being or our joy, or our happiness. It's increasing it through turning towards and understanding this force of craving and letting it go. So we start to realize that lasting happiness isn't to be found out there in the things of the world or by holding on to experience. So where is it? Well, the Buddha's answer was Nibbāna. And Nibbāna literally is the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. 
It's not some state that we, you know, ascend to. It's not a thing or a place. It's the experiential ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is what he was talking about. The word literally means cool. Again, I used talked about the fire imageries around thirst and craving, and the nibbana is cool. And it's a word that's used in in Buddhist countries. You know, nibbana the rice. Let the rice nibbana. Let the rice cool. So it has this soothing uh, possibility to it. Tanasaro Bhikkhu talks about it as unbinding, something that was constricted, letting the fire go out. Again, with the sense of the fire burning and crackling and agitated. And you, you don't, you know, get a big bucket of water and, and tip it on the fire. You let the fuel for the fire diminish. And when the fuel diminishes, the fire just naturally uh, diminishes. So it's a, it's a, it can be this very uh, natural process. There's this wonderful book called The Island that um, Ajahn Pas- Ajahn's Pasano and Amaro collected because they felt that um, sometimes we focus too much on the problem and not on the solution in our Buddhist practice and that they wanted to collect all of the places that the Buddha and other great teachers spoke about Nibbana. So it's a wonderful collection of references from the suttas and other teachings about this experience of Nibbana to really give us a sense of what's being talked about. It's said that Nibbana, the Buddha said, is visible in this life immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. I love that line. Immediate, inviting, and attractive. Comprehensible by the wise, by those who practice. The Buddha said, one who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here nor a there nor a between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. From the Udana. This is also from the Udana. The world is anguished, being exposed to contact. Even what the world calls self is in fact unsatisfactory. For no matter upon what it conceives its conceits of identity, the fact is ever other than that which it conceives. The world whose being is to become other is committed to being, is exposed to being, relishes only being. Yet what it relishes brings fear, and what it fears is pain. Now this holy life is lived to abandon suffering. Whatever states of being there are, of any kind, anywhere, all are impermanent, pain-haunted, and subject to change. One who sees this as it is, 
thus abandons craving for existence without relishing non-existence, the remainderless fading, cessation, nibbana, comes with the utter ending of all craving. It's challenging teachings, saying that this peace, this happiness, is when we let go of the conceiving and the grasping and the running after the things of the world and actually turn and be with things are things as they really are, for one who sees things as they are, impermanent, unsatisfactoriness, with no solid self. This is the doorway or the opening to Nibbana, to freedom, to happiness. By seeing this, by knowing this truly and completely, the Buddha is saying we can know the end of suffering. And so the practice uh, for the Third Noble Truth is to be experienced. The, pract- the, 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 experience, the, the cessation of suffering is to be experienced, that this is what we're invited to do, this is what is offered. But if we have this lofty idea of it, you know, the ending of all greed, aversion, and delusion, it can seem like something in the far distant future. But I really think that there are more ways to experience it than that, and that all of us have had some form or another of a taste of this, or we would not be here practicing in this way. It's actually said that any moment of mindfulness that's truly free of greed, aversion, or delusion is a moment of freedom, is a taste of this Nibbāna. We have known that. Ajahn Buddhadasa has this great book called Temporary Nibbāna. No, sorry, Nibbāna for Everyone, where he talks about temporary Nibbāna, this momentary ceasing of the mind that's always wanting and pushing and deluded and confused. He said, unless we all tasted that regularly, we go mad. We couldn't bear it to be constantly bombarded by greed, aversion, and delusion. So he says, we all know this. We just have to trust that knowing, trust that opening. And so the three facets of this third truth is there's, there's, there is an end to suffering. That Nibbana should be realized And then the third facet, Nibbāna, has been realized. Again, this gesture of the Buddha. We don't trust ourselves that we can know this. It doesn't seem enough or deep or powerful. But these momentary experiences, maybe longer than momentary, are really profound and significant. You've seen for yourself how you've been caught in some struggle some aversion or wanting, and then seeing it end, somehow the struggle release. That's a cessation. That's a temporary nibbana. We really need to know and recognize those places, those, um, those possibilities 
this is what we practice for. This is what we develop the mindfulness for, to know this for ourselves. And so it can seem perhaps challenging or confusing or lofty, you know, suffering and the end of suffering and what is that like and how can I experience that? Well, the Buddha didn't end there. He gave us the fourth noble truth, the way to the end of suffering. And this is, again, his brilliance to take this um, exalted teaching, this teaching about suffering and the end of suffering, and then say there's a path. There's a way, there's a, there's a road, there's a way, there's a, there's, a, there's a map that I will give you that shows you how to go to the end of suffering, the Eightfold Path. And again, this, the brilliance is that in this path there's sila samadhi panya, ethical conduct, meditative development, and wisdom. He talks about how to have wise relationships, how to live our lives, wise speech. It includes every aspect of our life and experience is touched on in this unfolding of the Eightfold Path. And it is what we're practicing here. Right view, right intention, right right action, right livelihood, right speech, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is what we're practicing here. We are on this path that leads to the end of suffering. And it you know, could give whole talks on each one of those facets of the Eightfold Path. But we have to trust that gesture for ourselves that we can do this, that we're here to practice this, to know suffering and the end of suffering. Zajan Sumedho says, though, just seeing anicca, dukkha, and anatta is limited to the conditioned realm. It is not the end of the path, nibbana. But don't hold nibbana up as some high ideal. Then we don't realize it when it's present. Bring nibbana to here and now, the point that includes everything. Nibbana is non-grasping. We just have to know what non-grasping is to recognize attachment when it happens. It's like this. You don't have to throw away everything to prove you are non-attached. We know attachment to know non-attachment. And we can know that right here and now. We can know suffering, understand it, its nature. We can let go of its cause. We can realize nibbana and cultivate the path. That is our practice. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. It's about 45 minutes for walking and then last sit of the evening with chanting and Chaz will kindly lead us this evening with some chanting. If you have the energy, it's a great way to end the day. Maybe you haven't made it to that last sit yet. So to show our appreciation for Chaz and give him some support by showing up, you are invited to join if you have the energy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.